I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. What I intend to do at the moment is just simply to tell you a little bit about each of the poets who's going to read in the order in which they're going to read, and then I'm going to subside, and they are going to surge forward one after the other, um, and the, 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 the prompt for them to surge forward will be the tremendous applause you'll give to those who are retreating. And uh, at the end of the reading, uh, not only do we have copies of New Poetry's Five, which is now an heirloom, five years or four years old, um, but we also have some of the collections that are already published. And one of the poets who's reading tonight does not yet have her collection published, so it's a superb collection. And we brought you advance order forms for that. So if you want autographs from all the poets, five of them can sign their books, and one of them can sign the advance order form. <laughs> Our first reader tonight will be Judith uh, Jedimus. And Judith is a poet whose work was sent to me originally by an old friend of mine from Oxford who said he thought the work had merit. Uh, what did I think? And instantly I realized the work had tremendous merit. What has been very exciting with Judith is editing her because uh, she is a poet who really ex is excited by form. And um, certainly to me, her experiments with syllabics meant a great deal in terms of my own syllabic writing because I was just finding my way into them. Uh, her poems are impassioned. They're very various and diverse, and they're all formally very acute. And I, I love her work. She'll read first. And then Helen, my colleague, my managing editor, will read second. And Helen's poetry is touched by all sorts of strange things, including German literature, including the German language, including a fascination with writers whose work I have an ambivalent relationship with, like Malcolm Lowry. And she, too, is a formalist, but in a very different spirit from Judith, uh, a formalist of a more, possibly a more experimental uh, kidney, but um, I really love the kind of poetry she writes. Again, a poetry of engagement, political, ecological, and so on. Then there's Rory Waterman, whose work, um, well, I, I've seen Rory growing up from, from, in fact, being a lump in his mother's womb to this rather large strapping chap you see before you tonight. Um, Rory is, uh, again, I, I I'll keep using, I suspect, with all of these poets, the word form. He is a wonderful formalist. He's a traditional formalist some of the time. He can be experimental, and his, his poetry is full of content uh, of a very rich and, uh, and a very vulnerable sort. So I, I think his poetry, too, does, does new things. Most magical for me uh, of, of the poetry, magical because, uh, because we haven't published her book yet, so we don't quite know what it's going to do, is, is uh, Lucy Tunstall. She has the most peculiar sense of humor and the most peculiar sense of relationship. And uh, I hope you'll all be able to explain to me afterwards the source and energy of her poems, which I find inexhaustibly delightful. Um, delightful and troubling at the same time. Um, and again, she does really weird things with form. The only poet I can think of who rem reminds me of her sometimes is Stevie Smith, and yet she's not at all like Stevie Smith, um, except that there's a kind of something, a something 
you can't put your finger on going on in each poem. And then there's Ollie. How's that? Where is he? Oh, there you are. Um, and Ollie's poetry, too, is, is experimental. He's the poet who wrote to me many years ago, well, several years ago, with a note saying that he worked in a, did you say a butcher shop, didn't you? A fishmonger's, yes. In Bristol, was it? Yeah. So I instantly thought, wow, here we are, the real thing. And so then it turned out he was at UCL. But I, I do recommend that anyone submitting work to Carcanet should, should, should have good working class credentials in this submission letter. Um, his work is wonderfully experimental, and it's, it seems to me to fall into that area of our list, which uh, includes the New York School poets, all of whom are, we've published. And, uh, and yet, it is very English. Uh, it, is very, um, it is very drained of, of su- subjectivity. I find it uh, endlessly rewarding and puzzling in the best possible way. And finally... Um, the poet who probably, of the poets in the anthology that are reading tonight, has had the most warm welcome of all the poets that we've published so far is Tara Bergen, whose uh, poem is the first poem in New Poetry's um, Five. It was the first poem in her book. It's uh, called This is Yarrow, and it really moves me profoundly. I think of her very much as a, a poet of, um, of specific gender orientations and with very, very specific politics, which I find, again, very stimulating and puzzling. So I, I very much hope you will enjoy these six poets, and I hope you will welcome them. And at the end of the reading, I hope you'll buy all their books. Anyway, thank you very much for coming. Michael's going to be disappointed because I've discarded the syllabics and my more formalist work, so I hope you'll bear with me. Um, and it's a pleasure to be here in the presence of these very young, talented poets. I'm sure I'm going to be the only one with reading glasses tonight. Um, I'm going to read two grim poems and two short love poems, which are not mine. Uh, so bear with me and we'll get to the lighter stuff. On the day of the shootings at Newtown, I had gone that morning to the Queen's Gallery to see an exhibit of Northern Renaissance paintings. I spent a long time looking at the retouched version of Bruegel's Massacre of the Innocents, in which the murdered boys are transformed into benign objects, a loaf of bread, a jar, a calf, a swan. When I got back home, I turned on the radio and heard the news about Sandy Hook. The coincidence was too striking not to write about. Bruegel's Massacre of the Innocents retouched. Where are the bleeding sons? Someone has daubed them out half-heartedly. Behind the calf dangle two frozen feet. What sense is left here? Why does this mother weep for an ochre jar? Why is this man trading his daughter for a swan? Why are these soldiers lancing a flock of turkeys? And there, dead center of the fair, Is that young man in green and white striped hose killing a bear or a boar? X-rays strip the victim of his disguise. He lifts his hands, those furry paws, in horror as the spear chokes his cry. If I look closely, I can see amid the carnage traces of original beauty. Bare trees, bare groves of lances, bare blue skies, Barrels tipped into blue ponds, blue icicles. 
and on each plane the essential snow, haloing the pain, deepening the crimson coats of the soldiers, whetting their swords, pikes, axes, buttering rams, stinging the eye, forcing me, the beholder, to breathe the air thick with screams. Yet nothing is as it seems. Even the master cloaked the violence, wrapping the infants in pastel lint, sealing their blood in poisonous pigment. Who can blame him? And who can fault the witness to this scene for leaving the Glock, the Sig Sauer, the Bushmaster, and its 30-round magazine clean out of the picture? The next poem is called Prayer with Nothelfer. I wrote it three or four years ago, but couldn't publish it at the time. Prayer with Nothelfer. Die soon, Father, in your own bed, an 80-year-old moon cooling your childish cheek, loons calling from the lake where you fished for bass, casting your line casually, testing your skill against your father's, silence falling like feathers as the canoe drifted. Die soon, as your mother rolls the Sunday kuchen, and you sprawl by the fire, drawing pictures of the green night and Gawain, while your sister plays the minute waltz. Die soon, in the torn-down house on Stark Street, where no one fought, and love was taught purely by example. Ich liebe, du liebst, wir lieben. Die soon, or at least die quickly, before the black lattice of your disease closes on the last and deepest memories, candles flaming on a tree, roast goose steaming on the table, your stocking hung by your feet as fourteen angels sing. Die soon with all your illusions as the North Elfer found their wings. That was the wish. This is the reality. November 20th, 4 p.m. Are you gone already, you asked, having missed the crucial moment? We looked away as you embraced him through the sheet stained with phlegm, the yellow phlegm that rose alarmingly when he forgot to swallow, neglected to breathe. For two hours you sat beside him, holding his hand, speaking with a tenderness he'd withheld for 50 years, until the blood eddied from his fingers and rigor mortis clenched his bones. Look, you exclaimed, to your eldest and youngest daughters, he's holding my hand, and his face, pinched as a candle, drawn as a shade, bade me not to judge, not to impede the free flow of your feelings. Remorse was thick in the room, heavier than the darkness that fell past our noticing as we waited for the last tick of blood, the final sigh of his poor spent lungs. When the mortuary man came to the door, stiff-suited, proper, and asked with glabrous courtesy if he wanted a flag draped over the shroud, you said distractedly, well, I guess so. Then he asked for the ring, saying it was better if we took it ourselves than leave it and risk the chance of theft. He oiled the finger, twisted and pulled, dropped the wide gold band into your palm. You clenched it as we left the room, giving the man time to shroud and load him, drive him through new snow to the place where they burned him to ashes. Now I've got the grim part over with. 
and I'm going to read you two love poems, a pair of late sonnets by Lorca. To understand the second one, you should know that at the time Lorca wrote it, and in fact well into the 1970s, long-distance calls in Spain were made from the Telefonica, where you'd shut yourself up in a wooden cabinet to hear the voice that you've been waiting for for hours and hours. Gongarine sonnet in which the poet sends his lover a dove. This bird from Turia I've sent you, sweet-eyed with pure white plumage, pours from its Grecian laurel love's sum of slow flame, the same I endure. Its soft virtue, its neck candid as milk, its double lily of warm foam, trembling with frost, pearl, and broom, Mark your mouth's absence, its cold silk. Pass your hand over its whiteness and you will see a snowy melody drifting in flakes over your likeness. And so my heart, by night and day imprisoned in love's blackness, weeps for your lack, its melancholy. The poet speaks on the telephone with his love. On the dune of my chest your voice reigned within the wooden walls of the cabin. South of my feet, buds of spring. North of my head, fronds of bracken. In that slim space a glowing pine sang before dawn and seed time. And my sorrow, venturesome, hung from the roof a hopeful garland. Far and sweet your voice outpouring. Far and sweet for my enjoying. Sweet and far, dying and flaring. Far like a wounded doe, sweet like a sob in snow. Far and sweet, deep as marrow. Thank you. I'm going to read uh, a few short poems from the book um, and then Tara Bergen is going to come up and help me read uh, one of the longer poems from the book um, because it has, uh, it's written for two voices, two parts. So the first poem I'm going to read is called Unadopted. When you lift the receiver, the story is already unfolding. Quiet, insistent, crosstalk of a party line. Behind the lockups, June hangs heavy, deep sea green and sour on the tongue. Wires hum along the cutting. At the edge of the permissible, you fingerspell the word, unadopted. Radios talk of Rhodesia, and at night, the fitful banging of the trap. So not only do I have reading glasses, but I'm old enough to remember um, party lines and Rhodesia. Funeral and Fox. One. Good Friday began in New York, watching the parade from tall windows, stilt walkers, a school of small witches. I had to kill the bad man to get the girl, went out to the forest cabin to see the hoods and hire a gun. No way, they said, you'll never take him. Back with the witches, I told the children, see, if you die famous, this is the send-off you'll get. Two. Later, in the village house, I met him in the airing cupboard, 
his burnt umber face trained on me from his foxhole among the bedsheets. There was shit on the patterned green lino, the towels in disarray. Oh, I know you, I said. You're the word this house will never hear. He fired past me, watched as I fumbled the key, lit out to the woods beyond the garden. Um, I think quite a lot of the poems in the book have a kind of a theme of um, sort of unearthing of buried buried material, buried stories, um, and the the way that stories seem to kind of develop around you and you, you don't always understand what's going on. So there's, there's a kind of process of excavation going on in a lot of these poems. Um, and the next poem has, has a similar theme, um, and it's about the way in which night functions as a kind of opening to um, sort of buried material. It has uh, a little bit of a quotation in it from the Song of Songs in the Bible. The poem's called Water, It's Voicings. Night excavates, reopens old coursings. In the mouth of the culvert, language grew, green and forbidden, fingering the edges of thought. We have a little sister, she has no breasts. Knuckling deep into brickwork, the secret places of walls. Persuasive, night pries through shut springs, sealed fountains. Complicit, you open your throat to water, its voicings. Similarly, the next poem, um, it takes off in a way from uh, dream material. But it also takes both its title and some of its text from John Ford's play, um, Tis Pity She's a Whore, um, which I'm sure everyone knows is, is one of those um, tragedies where, where everyone ends up on the stage very bloody and very dead. And um, the poem is called In a Richer Mine. By Palmer on the floodplain, the river in spate dragging ochre under dirty nails. Submerged a child, you resurface a doll. Mechanical eyelids, face cold and streaked with slip. Thin cries from the attic, zinc disc in the spine. Within this room she is, whose eyes I caused to be put out, but kept alive. Mama, mama. In the village, the scouse priest relishes his chthonic words, smacking his chops as you five months child awake and clutch under my heart digging with half-formed fingers in a richer mine I'm just going to read one more shortish poem and then um, Tara's going to come up and read with me this is a poem that's based not really on a dream but on a, on a memory and it's called In the Rose Garden She's in the rose garden again, staring at her right arm, its pale, soft underside that never gets the sun, never gets tanned. It's very strange, she thinks, because the veins at her wrist are greenish-blue, but the blood that's blossoming, overblown already, dropping fat petals on her dress, her shoes, the path with its edging of sharp, pointed tiles, 
weathered is the word she'll later hear and not understand. The blood is brilliant, startling red, much redder than the clouds of dark pink roses tangled above her. Red, and at its heart a splinter, a glimpse of white, bright as the spiny shells that mark the drop from the patio where her parents and the others are talking, moving their mouths and making gestures, though the sound doesn't reach her. The drop from the patio down to the lawn and all the way beyond to where she is in the rose garden, staring at her right arm, its strange new blossoming. Okay, so the poem that we're going to read um, is, is a kind of a collage poem and... The text is all taken from the diary of Virginia Woolf um, and as you'll see it's kind of cut up and rearranged. The subject of the poem is the, uh, is the New Zealand writer Catherine Mansfield and I think it's clear that Woolf had a very, very ambivalent feeling um, towards Catherine Mansfield. So the poem is just simply called Catherine. Catherine has been dead a week I think of her in this way, off and on, that strange ghost with the eyes far apart and the drawn mouth. The feel of her. Dragging herself across her room. A Japanese doll. Putting on a white wreath and leaving us, called away, made dignified, chosen. And then one pitied her. In a room high up, childlikeness somewhere. Felt her reluctant to wear that wreath, which was an ice-cold one, and she was only 33. Posed and twisted and the doll on the bed, which I detest. Catherine has been dead a week. Visual impressions kept coming and coming before me. Strange ghost with the eyes far apart. Very tidy, bright, and somehow like a doll's house. And the drawn mouth kept coming and coming, and I was jealous. And I was jealous of her writing, the only writing I have ever been jealous of. We met beyond death in a room high up. That faint ghost with the steady eyes and the mocking lips and, at the end, the wreath set on her hair. The mocking lips and the feel of her and the doll on the bed, which I detest. Catherine has been dead a week. How we met beyond death and shook hands, saying something by way of explanation and friendship, yet I knew she was dead. Japanese doll kept coming and coming and I was jealous, childlikeness somewhere. Agonised. And at moments, that direct flick at the thing seen, which was her gift. Dragging herself across her room, something driven and forced, yet I knew she was dead. And the perpetual, rather sordid worries and jibes. And the feel of her, and the feel of her. And something driven and forced to cram into one year the growth of five or six. And the doll on the bed, which I detest. Catherine has been dead a week. Husky and feeble, crawling about the room like a little old woman. The drawn mouth, something driven and forced. Had her look of a Japanese doll, with the fringe combed quite straight across her forehead. Kept coming and coming, yet I knew she was dead. And I... A kind of childlikeness somewhere, which has been much disfigured. And the doll... That strange ghost... Posed and twisted. Catherine has been dead a week. I think of her in this way, off and on. The feel of her... Somehow like a doll's house. Yet I knew... Yet I knew. Explanation and friendship. Yet I knew she was dead. And I... And I was jealous of her writing. The doll. The mocking lips. Dragging herself across her room. And the feel of her. And the doll. That strange ghost. And the doll. The mocking lips. And the doll on the bed, which I detest. Thank you.
it's it's a yeah, it's an honour to be here and a, an honour to be a, a tiny part of what Carcanet are doing. And um, it's great to see some faces that I recognise, including Sarah Howe, I just noticed over there. We co-wrote a sonnet together once that begins, I love my dog, I walk her in the park, but I'm not going to put you through that. So. <laughs> I'm going to begin with a, a poem that's it's, it's in, it's in my book. Um, it's also in New Poetries 5. Can you hear me at the back? Am I st- yeah, OK, good, thank you. Family business. The boatman stares through million pockmarked waters, tapping a cigarette, shying from the rain in Mac and wellies beneath the London plain that rustles and drips. He turns and tells his daughter to bolt the hut. Tonight the summer's over. He heaves the skiff to the boat shed, ties the lines and double locks the door. She fits a sign, closed for season. They load a battered Land Rover with cash tin, radio, stools as fast as they can, for it's raining harder. Lightning blanks the dark and then they're away, the wiper thwacking its arc. She glances at this ordinary man, then shuts her eyes. She's damp and tired and bored. He drives more gently. Neither says a word. Someone once... um, Wrote that uh, because it begins with a boatman. And it- Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Includes the word waters. It's, uh, it's me. I've put myself in it. That's, that's bollocks. But, um, but this poem, this poem's called Navigating, and it, it is also about a boat and some water, and, and it does put me in it. it. It did when I wrote it. That's how I imagined it. Navigating. A heron burst from the bank where we hadn't seen it to out of sight, beneath the tree-bitten sky the way we were heading. Let's follow. So a dawdle became the pursuit of something that we couldn't realise. We paddled and rudded, slick through spilling rapids, round snags and boulders, churned small, dark-skinned deeps as otters and crayfish hid. Sparrows and whatnot cheeped. Cows chewed at the lip of a sudden meander and watched us ignoring them. And inverted willows shivered with river weeds where toppled half-drowned boughs cut withering chevrons along each shadowed strait. We were happy, weren't we? Because each bend was blind. We must pursue and not expect to find. And the thing about that poem is uh, it's uh, the first poem in the book and it ends, we must pursue and not expect to find. So um, don't expect much, but uh, if you're a reviewer... If you're a reviewer, I'd beat you to it. Okay, um, there are only two poems of, of, of the kind in, in here, but uh, John, John Clegg kindly asked me to read one of them, so I'm going to read its pair, which is separated from it in the book, but is its pair. These are poems that actually are about my grandmother. I grew up in a house in a mile from a village, a little house, uh, with my, my mother, my cousin, my aunt, and it was my grandmother's house, we thought it was. It, it turned out it wasn't after she died um, but 
Uh, that's a different story. Um, it was a three-bedroomed house, and there were five of us, and she slept on a chair in the living room and died too soon. So it's for her. It's called To Help the Birds Through Winter. She knots our turkey carcass to the yew with garden twine and leaves it jigging and twirling with the wind. There's work to do, and here she is at the kitchen window. Her heart is giving out. Her serous eyes are failing, too. And before I go to Spain with school in five months' time, she will not tell me what I know, and I'll not ring, and grimed, frayed string will be flitting on its branch like torn rigging. And the partner poem is uh, on page 27. It's called Nettles. Okay, Nettles. It's one of the earliest poems I wrote for this book, actually. Well, yeah, one of the earliest poems I wrote and thought that's, that's actually not, not terrible. Nettles. I go to harvest nettles in the wood with vaguest thoughts of soups and stews and teas and wade through stems that break across my knees, not thinking of the wreck my steps have made, remembering my nan using an afternoon to gouge and twist her shadow with a spade for rhubarb that we never ate, for jams we never made. Okay. And I'll finish with something new. Um, okay, it's called Flensby Hall Day Spa. Um, there is no such place, it doesn't exist. Uh, there is a place called something very similar to that that I went to with, with my wife, and, and being, being um, me, I, uh, it was good for a bit. I got to play on watery things and stuff. It was perfectly nice. And uh, then I got bored and she didn't. My wife didn't, so I went and sat in the cafe and... Uh, you know, so you, you sit above and you can see the swimming pool down below and it's, it's quite nice. And um, I suppose this poem came to me then. It's called Flensby Hall Day Spa. They patter from myriad hatchbacks to sit in steam, to rub oils in, to sluice off Moroccan muds and come out looking the same, but feeling good, or at least not the same. A few accepting men have joined their quiet wives for special days. But tea time finds them waiting up in the gallery where crisp skylights show off the Victorian chimneys, the fat iron guttering embossed with dates. And down in the pool the women's heads bob past at tiny speeds, all stern and solitary. And farther off in the large mosaic jacuzzi, a sultry twenty-something climbs away from the bald jolly woman full of knots and cancers between treatments between friends, here to feel better. Thanks very much. Uh, so I'm going to start with a, uh, it's a little story about a girl in a tree. The girl in the tree. The girl in the tree is not a good girl. She is of the family of tree, slender in wrinkled tights and a summer dress. Her hair is brown and her eyes are black as anything. She is dangled precariously, but not really, a foot or less from the grasp of her father, who stands below with palms upturned and a tense neck.
The girl in the tree is crying. She won't come down or let herself be saved. We are all looking at the girl in the tree. She is of the tribe of the elf and her eyes are black. She turns her back and points her pointy toes and gives a wobble. Her arms are slender as a young branch of this small tree. Her mother is blonde and the baby is blonde. And the mother is oh so easy with all the baby chemicals and the circularity of the baby who really is enjoying this unexpected late summer sun and does not know about the loftiness of trees and a black look. And the next poem is a short poem with a long title. One day a herd of wild horses came into the garden and looked at my mother. Well, this is extraordinary, she is saying. This is quite extraordinary. The horses stand on the grass and look at my mother. My mother stands on the path and looks at the horses. The horses nudge and shift, their manes tangle, their hooves are caked in mud. Not until the mare has turned her head like a sail in the wind, away from the house and out toward the hills and led each straggling foal away, will my mother go back into the house, close the door, pick up a book, a coffee, a cigarette. And now I've got a silly poem about an antique long case clock. And uh, this is a, is a clock which once belonged to my grandmother, but is now said to be kept by distant cousin Gillian in a caravan somewhere in Canada. Estate. Some people do not think this an appropriate arrangement. They think it heartless of her to keep so fine a piece, school of Tompion, in such a dread abode. Heartless and unthinking, how could she? But I think it is a fine thing which I would like to behold. Is there a special orifice or protuberance of some kind in the roof of the caravan through which or into which the clock extends? Does it lean jauntily within? And does this have any adverse effect on the mechanism? Do the bears and moose rouse to its bong, bong, bong? How could such a wonder be in any way wrong? It may be scooped out like a canoe, circling the lake at dawn and dusk. There would be room for a packed lunch and the catch. Might be a barricade staunch against the creatures of the night it might be out in all weathers may serve as a makeshift bench or table it might be firewood a folly or a totem pole it's possible we just don't know oh Gillian cousin of my right hand cousin I have never met let me if some will not bestow with happy heart this ancient clock to do with just as you see fit in praise of self-possession and the pioneering spirit. 
And my last poem is called Arthur's Pictures, and the title refers to the Australian painter Arthur Boyd. Arthur's Pictures. The foolish lion is chasing the naked woman. The pedals of the piano loll like swollen tongues. The strings are spent. I do not like the chances of her naked rump. Nebuchadnezzar claws the ground like the beast he is. Something evil and pitiable is forming in the yellow light. The woman is all light. Her hair is golden light and her white clothes diaphanous light and everything between us is light. Her touch upon me is light and light go her feet in their white slippers. Her laughter's nothing but intensities of light. Glasnost. Can you believe we were ever strangers? I'm leaving you everything except my corneas. This blonde turns on the local air. The future tunes out. Look, her computer one morning at work. Try not to breathe, don't stare. An error occurred from the stone. I'll kill anything once. This directive. I drink my blood straight and living creatures. I'll stone anything Nude clairvoyant funeral sails. Are you guys having a fire down there? Slippery slope. Frantically she calls tech support and asks, You may have everything except my blood. I haven't had sex in ten years of whatever it is you think I've been saying. Until a familiar room with a book of carpet samples to distinguish texture from the appearance of it. Though you never know, do you, with the light frottage against diplomas? How did you overcome your youth is a weapon, and I would just like to know which complimentary onlookers will be cheering. You may have the technology, but I love you, Michael. When I read that poem and Michael Schmidt in the room is in the room, <laughs> it feels like an affront if I don't retrospectively dedicate it to him, but maybe I should just dedicate it to all of the Michaels. Prelude to growth. Tomorrow is watching today through the one-way mirror. Something is taken from each, exchanged for something else more or less valuable. Your two thick glasses, the ones that are totally off-trend, render the suddenly swarming pavilions a tearful furnace. No one is more or less orange. Microbes of sand grow on my eyes. The collision between cement mixer and ice cream van provokes less identity in the etiolated gallantry of longhand. Make milk my measure of white. Or today a smaller fraction of my life. To oil that lends water a gradient. And yet the gorgeous weather continues to move along the walls, plucks the Dijon telephone, approves its endurance. Now your hand hovers over each object, 
itself inflates to meet the Bruit gift. As these beaches remain leaning into their own portrait, in that fuller night, our skin powdery, we see the whole event unfolding very slowly, the wind somersaulting down our throats. Uh, quite a few poems in the collection uh, use uh, are quite disciplined, whether in terms of form or process. Um, there are some traditional forms employed, uh, sestinas and pantoums, um, and some less common uh, processes and forms. Um, I'm going to read two poems that involve these. Uh, the first of them is a poem entirely made up of definitions of unusual words. Uh, I came across a list of these words and their definitions next to one another by typing unusual words into Google. Um, and the uh, poem from which, from which this is extracted is uh, definitely worth seeking out. It is the greater poem. Uh, um, it's called The Inability to Recall the Precise Word for Something and comes with an epigraph from Borges, which is, All things are words of some strange tongue. The first person you see after leaving your house, one who always wants to know what's going on, to make money by any means possible, a surgical sponge accidentally left inside a patient's body, given to incessant or idiotic laughter, an incestuous desire for one's sister, the act of mentally undressing someone, one who speaks or offers opinions on matters beyond their knowledge, a secret meeting of people who are hatching a plot, the act of beating or whipping school children, the categorization of something that is useless or trivial, belching with the taste of undigested meat, one who is addicted to abusive speech, the use of foul or abusive language to relieve stress or ease pain, the condition of one who is only amorous when the lights are out, to blind by putting a hot copper basin near someone's eyes, the act of opening a bottle with a saber, the habit of dropping in at mealtimes, the act of killing every 20th person, one who eats frogs, the low rumbling of distant thunder, someone who hates practicing the piano, the practice of writing on one side of the paper, a horse's attempt to remove its rider, the collective hisses of a disapproving audience, the sensation that someone is mentally undressing you, the act of self-castration, being likely to make a mistake, one who fakes a smile as on television, counting using one's fingers, the act or attitude of lying down, the smell of rain on dry ground, the space between two windows. And... Um, I finished with a poem which is made up entirely of palindromes. It's called, Are We Not Drawn Onward? We Few Drawn Onward to New Era. Marge, let's send a sadness telegram. I roamed under it as a tired, nude Maori. No trace, not one carton. K, a red nude peeped under a yak. Was it a car or a cat I saw? Amen, I see cinema. Nurse, I spy gypsies, run. No, I tan at a nation. Flee to me, remote elf. Ever, can I stab bats in a cave? Oozy rat, in a sanitary zoo, 
loops at a spool. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here and to, to bring to a close this wonderful reading. It's, uh, it is an honour to be part of this anthology with such great writers and uh, also to be here reading in what must be the best bookshop in the world. This is at the garage. <laughs> yeah, to, to the, the bookshop. <laughs> this is at the garage. <clears throat> Ask me, have I fallen in love with the mechanic? Perhaps, perhaps for a moment. He doesn't know what it is. It's his hands, so thickly black with engine oil, so hard-working and in such high demand. Ask me, is there violence in the dirt? Perhaps, perhaps for a moment. Like a criminal's thumb, which gets held firmly by the prison officer and is then rolled hard onto gummed paper so that we know, we know that he is done for, and even the backs of the mechanic's hands, as well as the palms, are all inked black, and everything they touch will be evidence of him. The keys, the white receipt, my own hand or cheek were he to touch it. Ask me, ask me how that makes me feel. My cheeks turn pink with the thought of it, while his blushes, if he had blushed, would be hidden behind grease, a soft, deep dirt that is soft and thick like the ink in tins that etchers use. It makes the whites of his eyes whiter and the blues bluer. Yes, perhaps I am almost in love with the mechanic, but it is terribly awkward face to face. It's terribly awkward to be in such close proximity to the mechanic and the dirty girl on the calendar who is always there, just visible from the small window where I go afterwards to pay. I'm going to read two more poems. Um, the next poem I wrote, or I began to write, uh, while I was on a train. I was at that time um, doing a PhD, and I was studying uh, the translations that Ted Hughes had made of a Hungarian poet. And I'd brought with me on, on the train some work to do, and the work was to uh, compare two poems. It was really to compare Ted Hughes' version of a very long Hungarian poem, which had the title, The Stag, The Boy Changed Into a Stag Cries Out at the Gate of Secrets. And Hughes had done a version of this. He didn't speak Hungarian, but he'd done a kind of version of it from another English version of it. And I'd brought these two English versions with me. And part of my study was to see what changes Hughes had made and so on. But while I was... Uh, trying to study, uh, a stag party got on to my carriage. And um, so I uh, started to think of a poem that I could write as a sort of version of the many versions of this Hungarian poem that I'd been reading, although mine really is, is nothing like it, though it was first published in Modern Poetry in Translation. So my poem is called Stag Boy. He enters the carriage with a roar, he clatters in wildly and fills up the carriages with heat, running through the train, staining the floor with hooves dirty from the street, tearing at the ceilings with his new branched horns, banging his rough sides against the seats and the women who try to look away, gallant. 
He sings hard from his throat, his young belling tearing at his chest, pushing at his boy throat, stag boy. The train's noise hums in his ears, sharp and high like crickets pulsing in the tall grass, and he wounds it with his horns, maddened like a stung bull, pushing up his head, pushing up his mouth for his mother's teat. Where is her beastings? Where is the flowered mug she used to warm his milk in? No good. No good now. He's smashing out of the train door. He's banging his hooves in the industrial air. He's galloping through the city squares and drinking from a vandalized spring. And still his mother walks through the house crying, Stag boy, oh stag boy, come home. And the last poem I'm going to read is the the title poem of this book, and it's a love poem. This is Yarrow. In this country house, I had a dream of the city, as if the thick yarrow heads had told me, as if the chokered dove had told me, or the yellow elder seeds had made me ask. And in the dream, I went up to the dirty bus station, and I saw the black side of the power station, And as if the brown moths tapping at the window made me say it, I said, do you still love me? And when I woke and went to the window, your tender voice told me, this is Yarrow, this is Elder, this is the collared dove. Thank you. I'd like very much to thank the readers and to thank all of you for coming and to say that one piece of evidence of the greatness of this bookshop is that the bookshop, without our asking, in fact, as a great surprise to us, has produced bookmarks for each of the poets, uh, which are available to those of you who wish to purchase the books, of course, um, and possibly to others as well. Uh, and it, they're lovely bookmarks, and they commemorate the event, they commemorate the book and, uh, and the launch of these, of these uh, six poets who, who've appeared fresh before us over the last four years. Um, I am really grateful to you for coming tonight, poets, and um, I'm really glad that there are more to come. Uh, and I want to thank you again for coming, and I think the poets that are here tonight would be willing to sign books, or in the case of Lucy, perhaps the advance order form. The Republic of the Husband will be appearing in September. Anyway, thank you very much again, and thank you Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.